0: Hello once again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's all about astronomy and space science. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and it's great to have your company yet again. On this week's episode, episode 304, we're going to be talking about Black Widow binaries. Now, I'd never heard of that, but uh, and, and not many of them have been found, but they've found a new one, and it's a pretty extraordinary one at that. So we'll talk about that. And a citizen science project involving the Rosetta mission. We uh, might be able to uh, get you involved somehow. And some audience questions about strange lights, terraforming Mars and extrasolar objects. We'll tackle those later on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal.
1: 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4... Three, three, four, five, five,
2: four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronaut report. It feels good.
0: Yeah, it feels good. I feel good. You feel good. I hope Fred feels good. Astronomer at large, Fred Watson, who joins us every week.
1: Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. I do feel good, actually. Yeah, it's, that's uh, good. You're looking yeah. good. Well, looking, thank you. Thank you so much. Very swish, actually. <laughs> it's the old, um, you know, the old Carl Sagan look with the yeah, Stephen yeah. which I, I tend like. to to gravitate to in wintertime, and that's where we're heading.
0: <laughs> yes, well, as you can see, yes, I've got a thicker sweater on this week.
1: Woolly jumper, yeah.
0: Yeah. You know why they call it a woolly jumper? Oh, it's something to do with sheep, probably. Yeah, they, they crossed a kangaroo with a sheep. have got a woolly <laughs> yes, jumper.
1: That's, right. that's, that's the one, happened? yeah. That's it. um, It's an old
0: joke, but I I thought our overseas listeners would like that.
1: (laughs) It was rubbish when it was invented and it's still rubbish. still rubbish. Now, Now, uh, we've got a
0: a few really interesting topics to discuss this week and let's uh, hit the ground running with the Black Widow binary. Now, I'd never heard of this and I've done a little bit of reading and they haven't found many of these, but this latest one that they've discovered sounds like it's a pretty extraordinary thing Thing. But I suppose we ought to explain first up what a black widow binary is.
1: Uh, yeah, it's a it's a name given to an object that um, basically consumes. Uh, the partner that it's got that uh, that, is, that has really nurtured it um, in the past. So uh, exactly as the spider does, which eats its mate, yeah. uh, that's what's happening with this binary object. Um, and this particular one, Andrew, is even more interesting because it's probably a triple object. It's probably a, a black widow triplet, uh, which involves three stars, one of which is one of our old friends, a neutron star, and uh, the, the so the neutron star very very dense material you know one teaspoonful weighs a billion tons or something like that I can't remember the you, you're talking of about my brain now aren't you very <laughs> dense material uh, well you, yes that, no that's that would be a neuron star Andrew <laughs> <laughs> boom boom anyway never mind that so they they have very intense gravity they're very compact city size perhaps ten kilometers across. Um, and the, the, what they're formed normally by the explosion of a normal star at the end of its life when the outer envelope of the star is blasted out uh, and the core itself collapses, and all that stops it from collapsing to a black hole is the outward pressure of the neutrons jostling together, uh, hence the name neutron star. Mm-hmm. Uh, so neutron stars... Uh, Basically, they often, and I think probably all of them, rotate, um, and many of them emit uh, radio waves and other electromagnetic waves, including X-rays, um, along their uh, the magnetic poles, which may not necessarily align with the rotational poles. So you've got this that this phenomenon a bit like a lighthouse beam flashing, and that's. Basically, what we see uh, often with these things, we see the flashing lighthouse beam uh, of the neutron's radiation from its poles, uh, and we call that a pulsar. They we've known about them since the late 1960s, 1967. So, uh, what's the deal with the Black Widow? Well, neutron stars. Um, basically, over long, long periods of time, and we're talking about billions of years now, they they lose energy, they they slow down. Um, But occasionally, uh, they might find themselves in a multiple-star system, like a binary, where two stars are orbiting uh, their common center of mass. And we'll start sort of feeding... Uh, well, yeah, the, the, basically they, they get spun up again by material that they've drawn off the companion, they've fed off the companion star, mm. um, and that spins them up. Uh, and as a result of that, they get more energy and they start gobbling up the companion star more, more rapidly. Uh, so that is the the idea of the Black Widow, that it's, it's eating the thing that actually uh, revitalised it. So this particular one is one of uh, probably twenty or thirty that are known in our Milky Way. It's about three thousand light years away. Um, it's got a wonderful name: Andrew ZT, sorry, ZTF J one four zero six plus one triple two, and it, it, it's it's highlighted by being a very compact uh, binary system um, with with the pulsar itself and its companion star orbiting each other every 62 minutes. So it's got this 62-minute rotation period, um, and that's actually what has led to the discovery. Um, It's it's, uh, an extraordinary thing that most of these things have been discovered by their x-ray emission uh, because, as I said, they they emit x-rays. This one's very quiet in the X-ray radiation. Um, but the way it's been found is by the fact that the, the, this orbital period of the of the neutron star and its companion, the neutron star is very hot. Because the, the other star is so close to it, it's been locked in to uh, permanently face the same side towards the neutron star. That side is very hot and bright. The other side is cooler and dark and it's that 62-minute flashing as that bright side of the companion star points towards the Earth uh, as it goes around the neutron star, that is what has been detected. So it's been detected in visible light uh, Mm. with, you know, a, a standard telescope, in fact, one very... well quite close to my heart, something called the uh, the Transient Factory at Mount Palomar. It's a telescope almost identical to the uh, uh, UK Schmidt telescope that I used to uh, operate at Siding yep. Spring Observatory. So um, that's how it's been found. Um, but as I mentioned, there is another star uh, that is not yet fully confirmed, which is much, much further away. And the thinking is that that third star orbits the other two not in sixty-two minutes, but in ten thousand years. Good grief! Uh, because it's so much further away from the from the centre of the pair. Uh, extraordinary, you know, an extraordinary scenario, which raises, I'm sure, as many questions as it uh, as it answers. I imagine so. Yeah. Um, are these
0: things rare because they're hard to find, or there just aren't that many of them? Probably.
1: That they aren't. There aren't that many of them. I think is the answer. I mean, neutron stars are commonplace. Pulsars, I don't know how many pulsars there are measured in the Milky Way, but it's in the thousands, uh, So that they're, which are essentially single neutron stars. But neutron stars uh, in pairs or with binaries, they're also relatively common. In fact, there's one known pair of neutron stars orbiting each other but this black widow idea where you've got one feeding off a companion I think that is the rarity about this yeah Uh, and and they're they're not common objects Um, and that might be due to the the way that they're they're formed because we think that they've probably been formed in um, what's called a globular cluster that's a really dense cluster of stars where at the center of a globular cluster stars are you know they're not jostling each other but they're packed much more closely uh, together than they are in in a you know for example in our neighborhood of the milky way galaxy and the and the thinking is that what's happened here is that there's been you know these stars have been so close together that one of them's turned into a neutron star it's grabbed one of the others to go into orbit around it and the third one has wandered into all this as well and and had this period and then possibly the, the gravitational uh, pull of the centre of our Milky Way galaxy, which, as you know, contains a supermassive black hole, maybe that's um, sort of dismantled the cluster itself and mm. left this trio of stars wandering through space. That, that
0: third star in the system's um, obviously been keeping a close eye on the news and maintaining social distancing <laughs> because otherwise <laughs> could it be. Could, be, could be pretty hairy. Uh, well, but, you never but, know what you but, might catch from a black widow. No, exactly right. Uh, yeah. You certainly don't want to get bitten by one in this country. Uh, they um, right. we don't call them black widows; we call them redbacks, but it's the yeah. same family. Yep. Uh, but um, it, 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 is this? Uh, I know there aren't many of these systems that, um, as you said, maybe up to thirty. But uh, are, are they doomed to self-destruct ultimately? If you're eating your neighbour to yeah. remain fueled up, I mean, it, it's got to
1: end in disaster, hasn't it? Uh, Yes, that's right. uh, I mean, unless it finds a new neighbor to tuck into, um, yes, it will, uh, you know, basically, I guess the end point is that the star, um, uh, the the companion star gets demolished completely. Yeah. And that leaves the neutron star to its own devices, which over billions of years will, uh, as I said, slow down. Hmm.
0: Okay um what can we learn from something like this Do, is there
1: any science that we can get out of it oh absolutely and one of the mysteries uh in this story andrew is that that the, the you know there's been no x-ray or gamma ray emission detected from this object uh and so uh, that, which makes it unique actually because all the other ones uh, have been found because of their x-ray emissions mm. uh, so this what excuse me so th- this so there isn't there isn't immediate proof that that is a neutron star in the middle that comes about because of the you know the um the way the uh the the pair the dynamics of the pair uh you can you can work out what the relative masses are by the dynamics um uh so it's uh it's i I suppose you know it might be better uh, called uh a candidate black widow binary rather than yeah. a confirmed black widow binary because we 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 we're not absolutely certain that the neutron star is there because we haven't seen any radiation from it but uh, it may well be that with increasing sensitivity of uh, of these uh, you know high frequency telescopes gamma ray and x-ray telescopes something might turn up because so i'm sure it will be uh, monitored uh, even more closely than it has been already andrew
0: Absolutely, yeah. Okay, it would be something to keep an eye on. We've only got a you know couple of billion years to figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. but it, it does sound to use a
1: colloquialism like a hot mess. Hot mess would be good. Yes, that's right. A hot that's mess. A good, a good description. Um, mm. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't, heard that I don't on a reality I can, show. I don't think I can follow that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> all right, if there's anything more to report on that, we'll, we'll let you know. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go.
1: Space Nuts.
0: Now, if you uh, would like to support Space Nuts monetarily, you can do that uh, by becoming a patron. Now, there are a few options uh, which are on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. And you can just click on the supporter link and, and find out more about it. But uh, being a patron, you will get a few bonuses and benefits. Uh, you'll get the ad-free version as well. And uh, you'll get um, an, an early edition. So you'll, you'll get it before anyone else. But, uh, yeah, there are all sorts of benefits. And it's up to you as to how much you want to spend Um and if you don't want to sort of make a regular contribution, you can uh, just do a one-off donation under the buy, me, buy us a cup of coffee link. Uh, and the other way you can support us is by leaving reviews by um, you know, basically uh, whichever podcast distributor you use, uh, you can put a review in there and uh, that helps spread the word and get more people uh, involved in um, listening and they may even join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook and become another part of the family. So all sorts of good things that you can do to, to help uh, Space Nuts grow and prosper. And for those who've already done that in whatever form, uh, we thank you. Now, uh, Fred, uh, I love this um, story. Uh, I love the headline, spot the difference. Spot the difference. <laughs> now, this this is a citizen science project Uh, involving the Rosetta mission. Now, I suppose what we should do is sort of review uh, the Rosetta mission so uh, people can be reminded as to what that's all about, and then we can get on to what they can do now. Uh,
1: Yeah, that's a a good plan. (laughs) And um, Rosetta, you know, that was... uh, Project very, very close to our HALAP because you and I talked about it endlessly. We did. Uh, when um, Rosetta was in orbit around Comet 67P, otherwise known as churyumov gerasimenko I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And by the way, those two astronomers who discovered this comet uh, back in 1969 are both of Ukrainian origin. So they, they, wow. their names are highly U- Ukrainian names. Um, uh, it was uh, in orbit around 67P between 2014 and 2016. And during that time, the comet um, basically made its way from the outer region of the solar system, <coughs> excuse me, uh, beyond the orbit of Jupiter, uh, into the inner solar system uh, and went through what's called perihelion. Uh, it's not; It wasn't a comet that plunged deep into the inner solar system. I think it was still beyond... Um, the orbit of Mars at its closest. I can't remember. Actually. Mm. Let me just check its orbit. Uh, orbital characteristics, perihelion. Oh, no, it's beyond the orbit of Earth, but not beyond the orbit of Mars. Its nearest point to the Earth is at 1.2432 astronomical units, which is 1.2432 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun. So that was its nearest point. But, of course, when a comet gets to its nearest point, the comet is a the dirty iceberg, as uh, I think it's Fred Whipple called them, uh, Back in the day, uh, Frank Whipple, Fred Whipple—it's two Whipples in my mind there. I think, <laughs> so. uh, I think Frank Whipple invented the gas turbine, didn't he? Is that right? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's right. Yeah. Anyway, it—it's um, <clears throat> uh, when, when it um, when it get when that dirty iceberg gets near to the sun. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the sun's radiation essentially evaporates the uh, the ice in it to it's a, well it doesn't evaporate it's a, it's a blind, it it sublimes goes straight from a solid to a, to a gas uh, and that induces changes in the object itself uh, because you've got these jets of gas spurting away from it and so that uh, you know the amount of data that came from Rosetta was colossal huge numbers of images of this object it rotates once in about 12 and a half hours um uh, it's a, an object, you know, roughly four uh, four kilometres across and wide. Um, very, it's shaped like the classic uh, rubber duck, <laughs> the rubber duck in space. Yeah, because that's it's got, right. It's got two lobes, a big one and a smaller one, uh, and they're joined together. These are two separate objects that have stuck together under their mutual gravity at some point in the early solar system. Very ancient objects, <clears throat> excuse me, comets typically. And so... Um, Uh, well worthy of study, and Rosetta did a brilliant job. The only fly in the ointment was the poor little lander whose name was, was it Pillai? Um, I can't remember the name of the lander. It was the name of um, an island in Egypt, which I actually would have visited, except they moved it when there was a a, a dam built. Uh, Anyway, that... that, um, Pillai. Pillai, that's right, yeah. So it it landed uh, and sadly fell over, so it was... uh, solar panels were in the shade, so we didn't get much from it. However, what we did get from Rosetta was thousands and thousands of images of the comet from all angles as the Rosetta spacecraft orbited it, uh, both before and after perihelion, uh, the closest point of the comet to the Sun. Uh, And so... What the European Space Agency has decided, because that's the uh, the uh, organisation that that actually um, operate uh, operated uh, Rosetta, um, they have collaborated with one of the big citizen science uh, projects called Universe, uh, which I think we've talked about before, includes many different uh, citizen science projects, many of them relating to to astronomy. Uh, the, the, so Universe and ESA have launched something called Rosetta Zoo uh, and the idea is exactly as you've said spot the difference look at pictures of Rosetta taken before and after perihelion passage as it swung around the sun and find the difference because mm. that's that's really of big interest to uh, you know to the the planetary scientists the cometary scientists who are working on this you um, you're looking for things like changes in the landscape like uh icy boulders moving on the surface of the comet um, uh, you're looking for evidence of things kind of fragmenting uh you know the, the landscape changing because of the, the the fact that you've basically got um you know these volcanic eruptions taking place in the comet as the as the gas that's subliming beneath the surface blows off, uh, some of the, uh, some of the surface. And indeed we, you know, we had images from Rosetta taken, uh, near the time of perihelion when it was possible to see objects being blown off the surface.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I used to show a bit of footage of one of those in, in, in my Rosetta talk, which I'm given for a long time. It'd be nice to revisit it. Uh, and, um, uh, so, so you know, that's fine. Seeing things being blown off the surface is exciting and great. But what you'd like to know is what it leaves behind. Uh, mm. You know, does that open up interesting areas of the comet's surface where a further study of the images might show a bit more of the structure, the internal structure of the comet? So that's the, uh, the deal. Um, I think there's... Um, uh, there's a collaboration involving the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in uh, near Munich, Munich uh, in Germany, which which is involved with this. Um, in fact, it's one of their scientists who conceived the idea and kicked the project off. Uh, apparently, a couple of years ago, so we've got it now come to fruition. And I think uh, that it was it's something that um, some of our listeners might like to be involved with. Uh, yes, and. If they do want to get involved, uh,
0: the, the best thing to do is go to the Zooniverse.org website yep. because uh, that's where you sign up to get involved in, in this particular project. So Zooniverse.org, and there's a lot of slashes after that projects, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but um, Zooniverse.org is where you need to go and uh, you know find out more about spotting the difference uh, with Rosetta, uh, which could be um, – yeah, it could be very exciting, especially if you find something that no-one else has spotted. Yes. That would be That would be a coup. Get your name on a scientific paper.
1: Yeah, that, that's happened. That's the wonderful thing about citizen science. You never know where it's going to wind up. Yeah. Some people have become quite famous because of unusual things that they've discovered. So, yeah, just, um, uh, you know, I think to that, the fact that it's it's online, it's free, um, you don't need to install anything or sign up. Uh, it's just one of those spot. Classic Spot the Difference puzzles, and I think it's brilliant. (laughs) And
0: just to make sure you can actually sleep tonight, Fred, it is Fred Whipple, not Frank
1: Whipple. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Frank Whipple did invent the gas turbine. (laughs) Yes, yes, he did.
0: Uh, Just as a side note, um, do we know what the fate of 67P will be? Is it still doing what a comet does, or is it? You know going to vanish forever?
1: No it is, uh, it's in an orbit, it's not you know it's period, it's over the periods six years if I remember rightly, something like that. So it's it's not one of these that swings round past the sun and then disappears into the depths of the of the solar system. Uh, It's uh, you know it's part and parcel of the inner solar system. It probably did come from the outer depths of the solar system but its orbit has been modified very likely by a gravitational uh, influence of Jupiter. That's usually how these short-period comets are formed. This one, its period is 6.45 years. This is a short-period comet. So it will continue every six years. It will pass closer to the sun. It will outgas by blowing out these um, plumes of, of, of vapor um, and shedding chunks. And eventually, like all comets, uh, what you'll be left with is something which is like a a loosely packed asteroid. It's the dust itself that's holding together only under its own gravity because all the ice will have disappeared. But that's a long, long long process uh, and may take uh, certainly millions and possibly billions of years. So it will die down eventually, but for the moment it's, um, yeah, it's... uh, very high on our list of the comets of which we are big fans. <laughs> yes indeed yeah. all right
0: uh, yeah it'd be good to see it again it'll it'll pass by again in the not too distant future by the sound of it.
1: yeah there'll be uh, there won't be anything like we saw from uh, from Rosetta but nice no. yes, certainly observations will be made. yeah all right. Uh, So, yeah,
0: once again, if you want to uh, sign up for that project, uh, zooniverse.org is the website. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, if you haven't visited the Space Nuts shop lately, uh, why not? Uh, It's uh, on our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And for convenience sake, you click on the word shop and that's where you'll find all sorts of collector's items. Very rare indeed because no one's buying any. But uh, it's um, it's got uh, all sorts of uh, wonderful things in it. Uh, it's got uh, coffee cups and mugs and books. Uh, I just noticed Fred that start craving mads on sale. So... I don't know what that means, but anyway, (laughs) it's on sale.
1: No, that's all right. It's probably been remanded. uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) And there are polo shirts for men and women and hoodies and hats and uh, notepads, you name it, we've got it. It's on our uh, shop, spacenutspodcast.com, and click on the shop link and see what there is that you'd like to get. Bubble-free stickers. Stickers are always good. And, of course, as a patron, um, that sort of stuff, uh, you, you get bonus material for um, You know, sticking with us for certain periods of time. So after a few months, you'll get something. A few months later, you'll get something else. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I was supposed to tell you that. But anyway, you, now you know. <laughs> uh, let's carry I can't delete it. It went out live. Yeah. Uh, let's carry on, Fred. And we've got some questions. And we're going to go to the UK first because Mike saw something.
3: Hello, Andrew and Fred, Mike Whiting, Chroma UK. Um, I was looking out my window about ten o'clock last night, laying in bed. Um, I've got a fairly bright sky around where I'm, so um, I don't see a fantastic amount. But I was looking out towards Vega, I think, um, and I was I was looking directly at a particular star, and all of a sudden it got brighter by probably a factor of two over a course of about two seconds slowly faded off to nothing. Wait, another three seconds. I was just wondering whether, well, I thought it could have been a number of things, but um, possibly supernova, which I very much don't, or possibly a reflection of a geostationary satellite. The other one was maybe a, a meteorite hidden straight at me through the atmosphere. So that one, that one, just wonder what your thoughts were.
0: Mm, thank you, Mike. Uh, that's a little bit of a mystery. Could
1: be any number of things, I suppose, Fred. Uh, yeah, um, it, it's very hard to, you know, when you don't see it yourself, it's very hard to pinpoint what it is. But that's a good description from Mike. Um, I, I had it been a naked eye supernova. Sorry, supernova. It would have been headline news across the world because the yeah. last one of those was All right. back in we'll 1987.
0: We'll scratch that off then. <laughs>
1: 1987, I think it was 1987A, uh, which was in the Large Magellanic Cloud, and, and that was the first for nearly 400 years. So yeah. they're quite rare. Um, and and had this been. Uh, this conversation been five years ago or so or maybe four I would have said well it was probably an iridium flare because the iridium uh, communication satellites which were in relatively high orbits and were about 600 kilometers so they appeared to move slowly across the sky but they had uh, these antennas that uh, were like you know large wardrobe large wardrobe mirrors uh, and if they got to be in the right angle in respect to the sun, you get this bright flash, yeah. uh, and it looked as though it was stationary because the you know you, you, the, while the satellite was moving, it, it, just the perspective made it look as though it was something brightening up, uh, in, often by a factor of a hundred rather than a factor of two. They mm. were spectacular, but the, those iridium satellites have now been um, decommissioned. Now there probably are other things with reflective surfaces. And Mike mentioned uh, geostationary satellites, and that's certainly a good point, because uh, whilst geostationary satellites at 36,000 kilometres are really too faint to see uh, with anything but a fairly big telescope, uh, if they, if their antennas or uh, solar panels or whatever catch the right angle with the sun, they can come up to naked eye brightness. And in some ways, I think that might be the most likely of the explanations for what that is, because uh, it, it, it's probably something in our local neighbourhood um, that, uh, that's reflecting sunlight. But, um, you know, it, it's it's hard to know without having been there and seen it. So they're all good ideas, Mike, Um I think you can cross as much as Andrew just did cross off the supernova, um, yeah. but the others are good. And, and it is possible, you know, there must be meteors that uh, are head-on. Uh, yes. I've heard of people seeing them, so just a bright point of light that brightens up. Um, usually, they're not. Um, you know, Mike mentioned two or three seconds. They, these are usually over in less than a less than a second, mm. um, and you say, "What? What on earth was that?" Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and, and it's it's, long, it's mitty,
0: right? certainly mitty. possible, though. So, yeah, um, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time and the angle's perfect, it just would look like a glow and then gone. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. All right. So we don't know, Mike. <laughs> we don't know. That's right.
1: Could be all sorts of things. But yeah. he, uh, my my guess, I think the most likely one is a spacecraft. Uh, some sort of glint, glint yeah. yeah glint off a spacecraft exactly all right
0: uh thank you mike lovely to hear from you thanks for the question let's uh now head off to the united states and it's that old terraforming mars chestnut again
2: hey guys it's been a while since i've bugged you it's me martin berman Corbine, writer extraordinaire in many genres I was just listening to your latest episode about uh where you're talking about the Mars quakes and I'm going to ask you a totally off the wall question about terraforming Mars. So the big problem is that it's just too darn small to hold on to an atmosphere, right? Well, suppose you could develop um, put together your own miniature neutron star of degenerate matter. Um, nearby and shoot it right into the heart of Mars Um, would that work to increase the mass of the planet so that it could hold on to an atmosphere or would you just um, shatter the whole planet into a bunch of pieces and end up with a late late heavy bombardment um, of the solar system I uh, can't wait for the answer because uh, some crazy science fiction novel that I'm going to write in the future might hang on it. Love your show, guys. <laughs> Keep going strong in space. Berman Gorvine out.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Uh, I got overtaken by some degenerate matter the other day, so I know what he's talking about. Mm. Yes, what do okay. you think of his theory? Uh There's a book
1: hanging on this thread. Don't forget. I know. I know. Well, look. um, It's a. If you want, I I like the idea of it causing a late, late heavy bombardment. So the late heavy bombardment is that time in the about 3.8 billion years ago when the solar system was still full of churning bits and pieces. It's where most of the craters on the moon came from, and maybe uh, you know, at in our own era there might be a late late heavy bombardment by somebody blowing up mars uh, yeah. because if you had a neutron star that was big enough to do any good <laughs> i think that's uh, you know it would rip mars to pieces um and be very unstable and you've got to figure out how you handle something like that i don't know how you make it i don't know how you handle it when you've made it because everything gets spaghettified round about it um it's a little bit of a tricky one so um my View of that, I think it, it, it might be good in a in a comedy science fiction book. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's where it's going, uh, especially with the late late heavy bombardment. I like that idea. Yeah. So n- neutron star
0: material, um, degenerate matter, not not really going to
1: do it for Mars. Well, you'd, you'd end up with a black widow planet, wouldn't you? Uh, ah, yeah. yes, you would. <laughs> Yes, you Just would. To refer, back would that to,
0: be too close to us? Would we not? You know, yeah,
1: I'd... we'd we have problems as well. I think the swirling around it, the sun and the sun and lose its battle with it too. I think. So, oh Yeah, boy. it's a, it's a not a nice scenario. And um, well, you know what I think about terraforming Mars. But... <laughs> I do. I
0: do. Yeah. Um. Mm, it's it sounds like it's nigh on impossible. I think that's. And um, you know, I think you forget the nylon as well, it's just impossible. Yeah, mm-hmm. all right, Martin. Um, I'm not sure that'll give you fuel for your book, but it's science fiction, you can do whatever you please, really.
3: Yeah.
0: Just make it up as you go along. That's what yeah, I do. He does, he does, I do. <laughs> I do. I've, I've I've been waking up at night with thoughts about a, a new book, and oh, okay. I haven't started yet because what I want to do is I want to get Parallax on audio, which I haven't done. Mm. So that that might be my next project. Uh, the Hitler Paradox is now available as a as an audio download. Oh, good. Yeah, which uh, I'm I'm pleased about, and that took a long time to do. Uh, yeah, but it's um it it's. It's taking a bit of time to to get out to all outlets, but I think it's available just about everywhere now. Uh, thank you, Martin. And finally, we go to Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and, um, yeah, yeah this, one, uh, this one's a good question because um, I'm sure a lot of people have wondered about this.
3: G'day, Andrew and Fred. It's Sandy here from Melbourne again with a follow-up question to my last one around interstellar objects. How do astronomers determine an object is from outside our solar system? My basic understanding is to do with the speed, but what threshold or other marks are used to determine an object such as a comet hasn't come from the Kuiper Belt or the Oort Cloud? Thanks for answering my questions
0: and thanks for the great show. Thank you, Sandy. Um, I, th- I suppose it's like the discovery of a, a new world when the early explorers were uh, were travelling and they discovered New Zealand. And and I think you know, from what I've read, and this is pretty accurate uh, history, uh when james cook um stumbled across new zealand he went oh look new zealand i think that's how it went down so um maybe that's maybe that's how we've determined where they've come from we just looked <laughs> at them and went oh look it's an extrasolar
1: object <laughs> uh there's a bit more to it than that but um i kind of r- suspected that you're on the right lines the uh, the the giveaway is uh, the hyperbolic trajectory. Um, so, when I mean, well, let's go into the mechanics of um, of orbits. Uh, most of the orbits that, of objects that we're familiar with, particularly in the solar system, are elliptical. They, they're if you look at the shape that they trace out, it's an ellipse. And in fact, most of those ellipses are almost, or many of them are. A circular and a circle is just a, a special case uh, of, an, of an ellipse. Um, now, the, the shape of an ellipse is defined by a number called its eccentricity. Uh, and, for example, uh, for an ellipse, you know, a bit like uh, some of the asteroids, it might have an eccentricity of 0.5 or something like that. Um, the ex- if the eccentricity number is, is between zero and one, then you have an elliptical orbit, something that is in a bound orbit. It will continue going around the sun or whatever object it is. Yeah. Um, if you have a zero uh, eccentricity, that is the case of a circle. So a circular orbit has an eccentricity of zero. Now, what about an eccentricity of one? Well, what you've got there, if you think of uh, an ellipse, an, an elongated oval, and stretch it out um, so that uh, one end of it goes to infinity, <laughs> then ah. it becomes a it becomes a parabola, um, which has an eccentricity of one. That's uh, the, a shape known as a parabola. But you can have things that have an eccentricity greater than one, and they are called hyperbole. Uh, So uh, so an object on such a uh, a trajectory would be said to have a hyperbolic trajectory, and that is an orbit that is in no way bound to the sun, in other words, not tied to the sun. Um, And so most cloud comets will come in on a parabolic orbit, eccentricity equals one. Uh, You don't need to worry about all that stuff. I'm just showing off here. Uh, I do it well. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to run into trouble in a minute, I'm sure. Even so, I'm impressed. <laughs> um, so a parabolic orbit is, is like a very elongated ellipse, and something falling in from the oak cloud will come in on an orbit that was either parabolic or very near parabolic. But if you've got a hyperbolic orbit, um, that's one that's coming in at such a high velocity that it it makes this different shape. It's, it's wider than a parabola. A hyper, it's almost coming in like a v-shaped orbit as it passes by the sun where the point of the v is its point nearest to the sun Uh, and that's you know well it's the perihelion even though it, it never it doesn't go around another time it just goes past once yeah. uh, and that's the, the that's the diagnostic for interstellar objects it's in a hyperbolic orbit i think there are a few other clues that you can get from uh the you know learning about well, the orbit. Uh, sandy but, mentioned speed is speed yeah. a factor so so the speed is a factor uh in order for it to have a hyperbolic orbit it's got to be going very fast so yeah. that that's you know that. So, so I guess that's right. The two factors are the speed and the shape of the orbit. So referring to a hyperbolic orbit is orbit
0: a bit of a misnomer. Yes, is it's it or, not. Or it's is a, it orbiting something?
1: It, it, it's not. It, it well, no. it, it kind of orbits the sun once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's so a trajectory is a better term for it because it's not an orbit really. Um, I, I, loosely use the term orbit even though it is. It's really a trajectory. Okay. Thank you for that, Andrew. Good good thing you're here to keep me olives. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lucky
0: guess. Mm. Or is most honest really. (laughs) Uh, Uh, There you go, Sandy. Hopefully uh, that has resolved your query and thanks for sending in your question. And, of course, if you would like to send questions in, you can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com, spacenuts.io, if you don't like to type much. And just uh, click on the AMA tab at the top of the page. You can send text and audio questions that way or you can send us your voice message by clicking on the send us your voice message tab on the right-hand side of the, uh, of the page. It's a simple process. Don't know why we have two of them, but anyway, they work. Uh, but, yes, um, love to receive your questions and comments uh, any time, and uh, we do check them very regularly. Uh, if you don't get through, if for some reason we don't do your question, it's probably because we think it's, you know, garbage. No, no, more likely, we more likely we've done it before. That's that's the main reason people might miss out. So don't feel like you've been jilted, and if you do feel like that, it was all Fred's fault. But um, no, basically, it's um, it's probably because we've done it
1: before. True, uh, that's the usual reason, Andrew. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and it's usually one we've done before, quite recently. Mm,
0: yes no that's true Uh, and um, yes so it's nothing personal but you know if you have a complaint you can write to Professor Fred Watson Astronomer at Large
1: (laughs) they do they do
0: (laughs) you should work in radio Fred you should see some of the complaints we get in radio oh my goodness (laughs) and I'm probably going to get one now but um, we might wrap it up there Fred thank you so much great to talk to you again
1: Always good, Andrew, and I look forward to the next time. See you soon. Indeed, which will hopefully be
0: next week. Maybe. See you then. uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and for me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks to your company and uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio for pushing all the buttons and ringing all the bells and hooting all the hooters and whatever else he does. Uh, Until next time. Take care, and we'll see you soon on another edition of Space Nuts. Bye.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts,
0: Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast player. You can also
1: stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.